Well, this morning we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel 22 in the first part of 23. Uh, this is a passage I, I think um, is pretty relevant to this cultural moment we find ourselves in. Um, as you are probably aware by now, uh, Propositions 1 and 2 passed this last week. People have spoken, and uh, freedom is, uh, is the issue. Uh, the desire to be free from uh, government authority and to allow ourselves to uh, choose what we do with our bodies and with our health. And um, as to Proposition 2, um, having moved from a state that uh, legalized recreational marijuana use, I've seen what happens. Um, we, we moved here from Oregon. Oregon actually uh, uh, is now the, the first state to legalize all forms of drugs up to a certain amount. Um, and the idea being that that would actually curb crime uh, didn't work um, and increase crime. Um, the, the addiction uh, rates, uh, overdro- overdoses, um, violent crime across the board, armed robbery. Uh, uh, bottom line is um, it equals death. We're looking at death. We're inviting death. As to Proposition 1, um, to be frank, we... Uh, we have constitutionalized murder. And uh, we have devalued human life. We've devalued ourselves. We, we say, you know, this, this, this mantra of uh, my body, my choice. Um, we need to recognize what we're saying is my body, my property. We have reduced ourselves to being just material beings, property. And an unborn child is an invader to that property that you can now use lethal force against. In short, what we're, what we're looking at here is, uh, is death. Now, human laws, uh, they may be able to restrict our actions or free our actions. They don't change our hearts. And we as human beings need hearts that are changed. Jeremiah points out that the heart is, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And that's, that's evidenced in the choices that we make in the pursuit of individual freedom that is ultimately self-destructive. So uh, we're going to spend a moment this morning um, listening to, to what Jesus said towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, mourn, blessed are those who mourn. To, to mourn is to, to, to face, to address, to look at what is going on and what we see in our future. And, and so I invite you to pray with me as, as we mourn. Heavenly Father, we desperately need you. We desperately need your, 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 you to interfere, you to intervene. Lord Jesus, we, we need your kingship. We need your reign and rule. We need you to shine down on us. Holy Spirit, we, we need to be convicted by you and led by you. As we look at these decisions that we've made that are leading us towards more and more death. Lord, I mourn the loss of life to come. The children, the people who uh, will find themselves enslaved to addiction with no way out. We mourn this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Now, Jesus, when he said, blessed are those who mourn, he said they will be comforted. And so before we get into the message, I want to say these words to you, Revelations 21, 3 and 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I find comfort in that. All right, so we're gonna get into 2 Samuel 22 and 23 and hopefully you'll see the, the, the cultural relevance to where we're at today as we walk through this. Now, uh, this is the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, next week is our final week in, in this book study. And uh, um, what we find at the end of, of 2 Samuel is what we call an epilogue. There is a series of events, narratives, and, and poems or, or songs that are all sort of taken out of their chronological context and put right here at the end. And the author of Samuel is organizing this in what's called a chiasm. It's, it's where uh, the first element and the sixth element mirror each other. There's something about them that, that, that point to each other. And the second element and the second to last element mirror each other. And the third and the fourth element mirror each other. So that it forms, on paper, it looks like an X or the Greek letter chi. And what's being highlighted here is the center of the X. We are at the center of the X today. These, these two psalms that we're gonna look at, one makes up 2 Samuel 22, and the other is the first seven verses of 23. And what we're gonna notice right off the bat is one significant difference between the two. One is very long, 50 verses long. The other one is only six verses long. We'll talk about that in a bit. But we're gonna be comparing and contrasting these, these songs as, as the author of Samuel's put, put them here. He's reminding us of, of David, the great psalmist, the guy who, you know, you look at the book of Psalms, so many of those psalms were penned by him. That's part of, of, of who he is and what he did. But to, to look at these psalms and contrast the two. Okay, so um, let's dive into the first one, 2 Samuel 22, beginning in verse one. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Now this is also Psalm 18. If you were to flip over there, you're gonna see almost the exact language that's there. But uh, we have to start with when was this Psalm written? Okay, so the, we're, we're pointed toward the beginning that, um, that David is looking back on a time when he was on the run from Saul. The, the, the first king of Israel, uh, jealous and, and murderous towards David, had him on the run. David is, is hiding out in caves. He's living in exile. He's living as a fugitive. And, and David is, is running from Saul, who's out to kill him. And so he has this in view as he's writing this psalm. However, uh, the very last verse of 2 Samuel 22 says this, uh, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. When David writes this, he has in view, one, he's king at this point, but two, he's received the Davidic covenant, this promise of God that somewhere down the line, one of his descendants will be the king we've always been waiting for, will be the king that we need, the better king, the Messiah, who will reign eternally forever righteously. We know that to be Jesus. So he's pointing to this promise that he's received. So that means that this psalm had to be written after 2 Samuel 7, okay? But it's written before 2 Samuel 11. We'll talk about that in a second. Before 11, but after 7. So um, uh, we see that, that David, he is extolling God as a rock. 
God is my rock. And uh, we see that metaphor for God in a lot of places in the Old Testament, one in, in particular in the book of Exodus. Um, Moses is there in chapter 33, and he's asking God to see his glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory. It would obliterate you. My holiness compared to your sin, it would destroy you. But here's what I'll do. I'm gonna put you in the cleft of this giant rock, and you're gonna hide in there, and this rock is going to protect you from my holiness. And as I pass by, I will let go, my hand go, and you can see my back. Now, we have no idea what Moses encountered, but we know he couldn't see God's face because of God's holiness. And God, in this way, actually protected Moses in the rock from his own glory. Um, earlier on in, uh, in chapter 17, the people of Israel, they're grumbling against God. Um, they're out in the wilderness wandering around. They have no water, so they start complaining. And God says, all right, gather them around this big rock and then take this staff I've given you and strike the rock. And when he does, all this water comes gushing out of a rock. And, and Paul in the New Testament points back to that and he says, Jesus was that rock. He points to how it was a metaphor for, what, for who Jesus, as he was struck down, living water comes from him. But in, in view for David, it's probably not the rocks of Exodus, it's probably what he saw earlier in, in 1 Samuel 23. And there's this encounter when he's on the run from Saul, and we read this. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. So David, in his mind, remembers a time when he was on the run from Saul, and, and, and there was this mountain in between him and Saul, and he saw that mountain as God's protection, God's shield, God's deliverance, uh, God's uh, fortress that protected his life from Saul. God is his rock. And so in this passage, we see David uh, declare these nine uh, evocative statements about God. He says, you are my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. That's who God was to David, okay? Why did he need that, God to be that for him? Look at verse five. For the ways of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To, to my God, I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Um, so uh, there's this visual imagery that's happening here in the original language, there's a play on words. Uh, the word Sheol is, in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a picture of death, um, but the word Saul sounds like Sheol, and what, what, what the author is pointing to is that Saul is like death to David. David is being entangled, he's being wrapped up, he's being drugged down, he's being uh, suffocated, he's, he's being destroyed. David feels like um, he is dying in this sense. And so he cries out to God and God hears. And we're to understand from the passage that this hearing isn't some sort of passing, passive hearing, but it's, but it's intentional hearing, that God has his eyes on David and he's intently listening to him and he, he hears his pleas and so now God's gonna show up. God's gonna show up. Now, as I read this to you, try to picture this in your mind. The highly visual language that we're gonna look at here. Verse eight, then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the hem heavens trembled and quaked, 
because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Do you see this, this visual language? I mean, where, where we see earthquakes and smoke and fire and coals, uh, heavens bowing down and in darkness, God being pulled by some sort of heavenly chariot behind a heavenly being. Uh, there's, there's a torrential downpour. Uh, the sky is being lit up with explosions. There's intense sound, flaming objects. I mean, bodies of water are parting, showing bare earth. This is a very powerful scene that David is recounting. Mind-blowingly powerful, right? Um, Verse 17, and he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So David is saying that, 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 that God is coming. He's called out for help and God has come. God reaches down, God delivers David from his stress. He's from this, this, this oppressive state he's in where he's, he thinks he's, he's dying and he, and he places them in a broad place. Any of you ever experienced claustrophobia? Um, I, I've never experienced claustrophobia, claustrophobia before, except for a couple years ago. And uh, we were at the Air Force Museum, and there's one of the, the um, presidential planes. I think it was the, the JFK one. And you go in through the front of the plane, and you follow the little aisle, and you come out the back of the plane. But um, there's plexiglass down the aisle. So you, you can see what's on either side of the aisle, but it's like this narrow, and it's plexiglass. And there's no air movement through there. And there were people in front of me, and there were people behind me. And for the first time in my life, I thought I was going to die. Uh, it was completely irrational. There was, there was nothing around. Like, I, you know, I could see the exit. It was, I've never experienced this before. But for the first time in my life, I, I was in this situation where I'm like, if these people don't move in front of me, I'm going to trample them. I have to get out of here or I'm going to die. Like, there's that feeling. I feel like I'm going to die. Like, so uh, when I, and I finally got out of the plane and you step into that big hangar, like, ah. And, and this is like a, like a glimpse of what David is experiencing here. He's, he's, he's feeling like he's going to die. He's feeling like he's being wrapped up in cords and drugged down underwater. He feels like he's being uh, suffocated and, 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 and struck down. And so he calls out to God and God has lifted him out to a broad place and it's like, this relief that David is experiencing. Now, it's an important question to ask at this point. Uh, all these, these visual images that we see here, God bowing down heaven, coming, riding on a, you know, behind a cherubim, uh, lightning, coals of fire, smoke, like all these pictures that we're seeing here. Where did we see that in the text? I mean, I know it's been a bit since we went through 1 Samuel, and as we've gone through second, like, where did you see God showing up in that way? We didn't. 
Um, when we look at how Saul was brought down, we find uh, uh, in 1 Samuel 31, the, the way that Saul was destroyed was in battle. He was fighting the Philistines. Um, he got killed on Mount Gilboa. David was 100 miles away. God's not even mentioned in the text. So why is it that David is saying all of this, that, that when he called out to God for deliverance against what was happening to Saul, that this is what God did and that this is how God showed up? Is it just like poetic license? We talked about this last week that, that David saw things that other people didn't see. When David stood in front of Goliath, he saw Goliath for who he was in light of who his God was. He saw behind the physical reality, he saw the spiritual reality. Is, is this the spiritual reality that, that, that David saw? We know uh, from other places in, in, in scripture like 2 Kings 6, that people were able to see other realities beyond the physical reality. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha the prophet is surrounded by this enemy army and his servant is with him thinking that, oh, we're gonna die. And he says to his servant, I'm, I'm gonna pray for you that your God opens your eyes to see what's going on. And his eyes are opened and there's, there's another army behind that army, a flaming army, chariots of fire and horses. It, there's, there's a spiritual reality that, that David and others glimpsed. And that's what he's pointing to, even though from, a, from an earthly standpoint, from a physical standpoint, Saul was removed uh, by dying in battle. Um, but he's still removed. And so uh, the second question is, is you know, why did God uh, save David? And David's words here is, uh, it's because he delighted in me. God saved me because he delighted in me. God loved me, so he saved me. What does he base that off of? In David's mind, why does he think God delighted in him? Well, it's because he, he thinks he's obeyed the law. Keep reading with me. Look at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless, with the purified you deal purely, and with the crooked you have made, make yourself seem tortuous. What is David saying here? God saved me because he delights in me. He delights in me because I've been righteous. Now David probably has in mind Saul, right? Saul was not righteous. Saul did what was wicked in God's sight, so God removed him. But here's David saying, I've done the right thing. I followed all God's rules. I'm righteous. Hmm. Keep going. Uh, verse 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. This is sort of a reflection of what the song of Hannah is in the prologue of 1 Samuel. Hannah has this theme that God exalts uh, the, the humble, but he, he brings down the proud, that God lifts up the lowly, but, but he brings down the, the, the arrogant. So David repeats this, and the question is is, is, is David being humble here? When he says in verse 21, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Is he being humble? We'll come back to that. Verse 33, 
or I'm sorry, 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Once again, the imagery of the rock. Once again, he's putting the the emphasis on who God is and what God's done. He's glorifying him. Verse 33, this God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. It's really interesting. He's made my way blameless. Now, um, translators have actually struggled over some of the words in, the, in, in this, and they don't always agree. Um, the ESV puts it that he, he made my way blameless. Other translators uh, say that he shows his way to be blameless, that God is not talking about David's blamelessness. He's talking about his, his own blamelessness. There's verse 34. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. Uh, Again, translators disagree where the ESV says your gentleness made me great. Others translate it as your chastisement made me great. In other words, your discipline made me great. Um, A little bit difficult there. Verse 37. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. What's David's attitude? What what, what is he saying about himself? What is he saying about what he's done, what he's accomplished? He's giving credit to God for sure. But what is the attitude there? It's it's one of of a warrior defeating an enemy. Warrior defeating an enemy. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. We saw this earlier in 2 Samuel when David becomes king. He works hard to unite all the tribes together. He unites everybody. Then he goes to war with surrounding nations. He, he subdues them. Some of them he doesn't even have to fight against. They just surrender and, and, and follow weak, uh, willingly. But he's remembering that. 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. Once again, David is saying what God has done. But underneath this, why has God done it? Why has God exalted him? Why has God saved him? Because David thinks he's righteous. He's been rewarded according to his deeds. The psalm concludes with these words. Verse 50 and 51, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. He's reminding us of the covenant. 
God says, a king's gonna come from you, the king you've always needed, the king that you've been waiting for, the Messiah is gonna come from you. This is a promise. <coughs> Excuse me. What is David basing this promise off of? Again, his own righteousness. We need to understand something, that when this psalm is written, it is after chapter seven, but it is before chapter 11. In 2 Samuel 11, David reaches out, takes a woman who is not his wife, commits adultery with her, and then murders her husband. Is David righteous? He commits this horrible act. He breaks the law, okay? He breaks the law. Now, when David is claiming to be this, this righteous man, um, what he has in view is uh, it, it's the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. The law that he says that he's kept that makes him righteous, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant, we see it in Deuteronomy 28 that there's this conditional uh, uh, covenant that God makes with his people. And God says to them, if you'll obey me, then I'll bless you. He says uh, this, Deuteronomy uh, 28, if you will faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you, God says, the Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come at you uh, against you one way and flee before you seven ways. In other words, you obey me, I'll protect you from your enemies. Right? David is looking at his life, he's saying, I've obeyed God, therefore God has protected me from my enemies. Saul, on the other hand, disobeyed God, and so God didn't protect Saul from his enemies. Uh, later in 28 of Deuteronomy, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. So David's looking at this covenant, he says, I've obeyed it, therefore I'm righteous, therefore you delight in me, therefore you rescue you, me and save me. David is in this psalm, he's saying that, that God's actions toward him ultimately are rooted in David's righteousness towards God. Now, keep that in mind. It was written before he fell. Now let's look at the psalm that was written after he fell. Chapter 23, beginning in verse one. Now these are the last words of David. David's about to die. This is towards the end, the final chapter of his life. These are the last words of David. <clears throat> the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now this is the author of Samuel writing this line, but he says, look at David, the oracle. He's not saying songwriter, he's saying oracle. And, and, and the Greek, or I'm sorry, the, the, the Hebrew word there is neum. It means it, it's prophetic revelation. So you can read this like a poem, but it should be understood as prophecy. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. In other words, this, he's, he's in the role of a prophet now, like thus saith the Lord. This is prophetic words that he's about to, to, to utter. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? This is written after David falls. 
This is written after he sinned. This is written after God sends Nathan to confront him in chapter 12. Um, God, uh, he sends the, the prophet Nathan to him, and, and Nathan says to, to him this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? In other words, David has, he sinned just as bad as Saul ever did. He's failed just as bad as Saul ever did. And God confronts him in his sin. And in that moment, David does something that Saul never did. He repents. He repented. And then God said to him, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. See, here's what happened. In the first Psalm, David is talking about a man who sees sin before him. Sins perpetrated against him by somebody else, and he wants God to judge that. He wants God to target that, to stop that, to deal harshly with that. He wants God to bend down heaven and come on a chariot and shoot flames and coals of fire. However, when he sins, what happens? You see, David repents. His life is spared, and David doesn't get what he deserves. And when he writes 23, this is a man who understands he did not get what he deserved. This is a man who wrote the words of Psalm 51. I know that my sins are ever present before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. David understands that he has deserved to be destroyed. Instead, he was spared. He repented, and now he's resting in the grace of God. He didn't get what he asked Saul to get. He didn't get what he deserved. And so when he says this time around, for does not my house stand so with God? His answer is, for he's made an everlasting covenant. In other words, David at this point says, my house is in good shape at this point. It's, it's sound and secure, but not because of my righteousness, but because of the promise of God. What's changed in David? Now, the, the thing that he points to here, David recognizes that he's not the, uh, the, the, the righteous king, the, the one who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. That's not him. David's not claiming to be that guy. He's actually pointing towards the Messiah. He's pointing prophetically towards the one who will come. Who one that, that will reign righteously, who will dawn on us. That's what he's pointing to. He knows he's not the Messiah. However, he's also not the worthless man. Look at verse six. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. For the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David's not the worthless man. David repented. The worthless man or the worthless woman that David is referring to is the unrepentant person, the person who refuses to be taken in hand. David allowed God to take him in hand. He suffered the consequences that he had coming to him because of his sin, but God forgave. But you see, the, the, there's a person being talked about here who will receive the judgment of this Messiah, and the only way that it can be dealt with is by the the with iron, the end of a spear, and with fire. But that's up to God. It's not up to David. He's not the Messiah. He's not the worthless man. 
But what is he doing in, in this passage? He's pointing us forward. He's pointing us forward. Now, when we come to compare these two songs, the first thing, one, the first one's really long. It's full of visual images, parallelism, all sorts of stuff. It's, it's very long. 50 verses versus the second one is six verses. Why? It could be wisdoms at work. You know, um, Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Maybe wisdom is at work in David, and he's letting his words be few. But there, but there are other contrasts between these two. They're, they're so different, in fact, it's hard to believe they came from the same person. When you analyze, who is the, what, what's the identity of David in the first song compared to what's the identity of David in the second one? Who is God to David in the first song? Who is God to David in the second song? See, in the first song, what's ever be present before David's eyes is other people's sin. It's what they have done to me that's what's present before my eyes. That's the thing that I see, and that's the thing that, that I need help from. And so he calls out to God to deliver him, and God does. But David thinks that that deliverance is based on his righteous obedience to the law. He thinks he's a good guy. He thinks that he deserves God to save him because he's followed the law. Like, David is a righteous warrior in this first song. And God, well, God's just living up to his end of the bargain. God's just doing what he's supposed to be. I was righteous, God's supposed to save. He did. The second song, however, comes from a man who has been broken by sin. It comes from a man who recognizes that he has sinned against God, and yet he didn't get what he deserved. He's been forgiven and received grace. And so he's not pointing to anything that he deserves. Instead, every blessing that he has, he's pointing to the promise of God and saying, it's all God. It's not me. You see, what's happened to David because of, uh, of the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, what's happened to him is he's gone from a, a righteous or maybe self-righteous warrior type to a wise prophet type. He's grown, spiritually speaking. See, what happens in us when we begin to follow Christ often is we, we have a small view of our sin. We, we, we see, yes, we need a Savior, but not much of a Savior. We need forgiveness, but we don't need that much forgiveness. We, we have sin, but, but the, the reality is we, we just need a little cross. We just need a little grace. And yet, as we journey through life, as we journey following Jesus, what we discover is that our sin actually gets bigger in our eyes. We're understanding the gravity of what we've done more and more. And as the sin in, in our eyes gets bigger, so does the grace of God get bigger. We, we get to a point in, in our lives where we recognize, man, God didn't save me because I'm awesome. God didn't save me because, but because he... I deserve to be. God didn't rescue me because, because uh, you know, I've earned it. God saved me because, because God loves me for whatever reason. You discover the grace of God. And, and, and the reality is, it's like his cross gets so much bigger. His grace is so much more. 
See, what we see in, in these two psalms is, is somebody who has grown in their knowledge of grace and that's changed their lives completely. How does that change how we see what's happening in our own cultural moment? How do we respond? Uh, on Wednesday morning when I heard the news about uh, Prop 1 and 2 passing, my first response was cynicism. Again, in my mind, I'm like, well, I guess we're just Michigan now. Like, without the pretty water. Ohio, like, here's the mitten, and here's Ohio, and I guess we're the forearm of Michigan. We're southern Michigan. That's what we are. Right? Just cynical. And um, that cynicism turned to anger. You know, to be honest, like, if we have a government that uh, won't defend the helpless, won't defend the weak, won't uh, protect people from themselves to a certain degree. We have a government who, who allow these kinds of laws to be passed, and that's a government not worth following or submitting to. I was angry. The heart of the zealot comes out of me in my anger. That turned to, well, a revolution probably won't take, so the next best thing is uh, run. Uh, find the cabin in the woods uh, wash your hands of it, let this culture implode upon itself, and, uh, and go, go be Jonah waiting for God to rain down fire. Like, just find that, that maybe, it, maybe it's a cave. I don't know. I don't care. But, like, to get away, right? And I look at 2 Samuel 22 this week, and I was just like, there's so much about this passage. It just resonates with me. Like, God, this sin is just entangling us. Like, it's just dragging us down. God, like, it's, it's destroying us. It's suffocating us. God, don't you see this? Don't you hear? When are you going to bow down heaven and, and come riding in? When are you going to shoot that coal and, and, and hear that thunder and that light? Like, when do we get to see that judgment? Like, when are you going to strengthen us so we can bend, you know, bows of bronze and defeat our enemies and we can take part in this revolution of that like like when is this going to happen like there's so much about this psalm it's just like come on you know like but the reality is, is as it set, set sank in in me realizes realizing that what was present in front of my eyes was other people's sin it was the sin of the culture it's a sin of the world. It's, it, it's, 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 what, it's what's out there that's going to affect me. And, and my response is, is self-righteousness. God judged that. Meanwhile, I've forgotten that the same heart that exists in that world and that culture was in me. As Paul says to the, to the Romans, Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says this to, to the Colossians, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. Alien, hostile in mind. Is there words that describes our culture better and its attitude towards God? Hostile in mind. And yet, that's where you and I were when God found us. And yet, what he did for us was he reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. You see, the heart that wants to judge the culture forgets that my heart oftentimes still looks like that and still want to pursue my own personal freedom, even if it's self-destructive at times. See, we, we can respond to what's going on with, with self-righteousness and judgment, or we can respond the way that Jesus responded. 
with, with how David points us to the Messiah. You see, as our culture is reaching out and trying to get more freedom for itself in individual ways, it thinks that it's reaching out for abundant life when instead it's, it's reaching out for abundant death. But Christ does the exact opposite because we see him descending. We see him giving up glory. We see him taking the form of a servant. We see him going to a cross and laying down his life. In other words, Jesus gave up freedom in order to secure freedom for us. He gave up all of his freedom so that we might know forgiveness of sins. He gave up all of his freedom so that we might know the adoption of sons and daughters. He's given up all that freedom. See, it's the exact opposite of what the culture is, is desiring to do. What should be our response? Our response should be to follow Jesus. Here, here's the reality. Um, there's this idea that's pervasive in, in, in Western Christianity and American Christianity that we need to be people who fight for our rights. That is a reflection of our culture. It's not a reflection of the gospel. We are called to give up our rights and lay down our freedoms. You know, the, the early Christians, when they lived in a, in a society in Rome, when, when they rejected their kids, when they, they cast them out to die of exposure, it was Christians who came along and snatched up those kids and adopted them. You say you're against abortion? Do you know what it means to give up your freedom? You know what it means to actually commit to that kind of surrender? To take a child that belongs to somebody else into your home, to raise them as yours, to love them that much? Do you realize that if every church in America adopted one kid out of the foster care system, there wouldn't be a foster care system? Christians say we're against abortion. Are we really? What difference would it make if one family did that? And not, not everybody in the church has to do it. If one family does it and the rest of the church comes around to support them, what if it's a family that thinks they need you know, you know, two-person income for one of them to give up their job to donate or to give their time to that, that child who's gonna need a lot of love for that church to come around them and financially support them so they can live on one income? That's happening, actually, in this church, by the way. But you see, what would happen if we would give up freedom in the face of this culture who is doing everything, can, everything they can to get it, and it's self-destructive? I mean, hope rising. I mean, you can adopt a family. There's a, there's a lot of people who, they're facing the cost of what it means to bring a child home from the hospital, and they can't afford it, and so they're looking at abortion as an option. What if we stepped in and said, we'll take care of that? What if when we were looking at these people who are stuck in addiction, who, who are struggling, who are losing everything because of, of their, their, their need to recover, and why, why not support things like Emerge and organizations like, that help people not only recover from drugs and alcohol, but give them jobs, help them find work after? Like, what if we took the gospel so seriously that we actually did what Jesus called us to do and give up our freedom? It will be costly and it will be painful. 
but it will proclaim the gospel. And it will make a difference. And it can change the world. The question is, when we look at what we've seen this last week, we have a choice of how to respond. Self-righteous warriors or wise prophets? Will we choose to lay down our freedom? I think that we can't in and of ourselves do it. I think that's why we have the Holy Spirit. I don't think that we can muster enough courage to lay down the kind of freedom that we need to do in order to to affect the change that the world needs to see in experiencing the gospel. But we have the Spirit of God living in us to enable us to do it. Can we pray for that as we close? Holy Spirit, we need your power to change our wills, to change our hearts, to help us to want the gospel to affect the world more than we want our individual freedom. Help us to reject the lies of individualism that permeate our culture and permeate our churches. Help us to have the courage to not just point out what is wrong, but effectively act towards making wrongs right. Pray this in the name of your son.